Well, <clears throat> I was reflecting this past week on how long it's been since I felt the urge to reflexively refer reference the global pandemic in a sermon. <laughs> Obviously, COVID is still around. And in fact, I feel like at any given time these days, I know someone who's currently suffering from it. But it used to be top of mind for almost everyone on the planet almost all the time. And that's just not the case anymore. And I thank God for that. One of the lingering post-COVID realities, though, is that a lot of us have been worn down pretty thin by the hardships of these past few years. Not just by the presence of COVID-19 itself, the pandemic is kind of a shorthand for this whole past season of various and sundry intense difficulties that have comprised the upheaval of these past few years. It seems like most people you talk to could probably list four or five significant challenges, either in their personal lives, in our national conversations, even global realities, that were either not an issue at all three or four years ago, or that have been significantly exacerbated in the intervening time. Strained relationships, civil unrest, large-scale problems that seem to defy any solution. There's a new awareness of our vulnerability and consequently a new awareness of threat in our daily lives. A little bit of bad news or a breakdown in, a, in communication, even in, a, in one conversation, that would have been just a bump in the road before, can be devastating when our mental, physical, spiritual reserves are chronically low. How do we live in times like these when it feels like there are threats all around? Should we aim for ceaseless vigilance and engage in counterattack wherever we can figure out how to do that? Is it better to disengage wherever we can, mentally checking out through substance use or escapist media? Or do we just put our heads down, do what we've got to do, and try to power through? Apart from practicing aggressive self-care and hoping, waiting for better times, what can be done? Specifically as Christians, for those of us who believe in a loving Heavenly Father who is with us, is there another way? Is there a place of safety provided by the Lord God? And if so, how do we find it? This morning's Psalm, Psalm 141, is a prayer for people in times like ours. And more than that, it describes and it illustrates a way of living that is a powerful model for how to live when we are under sustained threat. Psalm 141 was written by someone who lived under the threat of sudden violent death for years. It is one of the Psalms of David, and David spent a period of maybe six to eight, maybe 10 years, trying to evade the murderous and unstable King Saul and his thousands of soldiers. 
This history is recorded in 1 Samuel, and many scholars believe that David wrote this psalm, this morning's psalm, 141, and many others during the most intense of those years. This is when David was moving around in the wilderness from one desert cave to another with a small band of soldiers. If you've not read 1 Samuel recently, I warmly encourage you to do so. It's really interesting stuff, a lot of high drama, some fascinating characters. But understanding the actual circumstances from which many of the Psalms of David were written can be a source of encouragement, strength, and even guidance. For me, that lived history that we can read helps take the Psalms from a place where I relate to them as beautiful bits of religious poetry to where I know them as deep cries of the soul from a fellow human being and one who loves and worships the same God I do. Because these prayers are both authentically human and divinely inspired, they have the potential through the power of the Holy Spirit to shape us and form us into a people who know what to do in tough times. Let's dive in. Please turn in your bulletin to Psalm 141. We're going to tackle this psalm in reverse order, starting at the end and working backwards, because I think the end of the psalm is a more accessible place to start than the beginning for most of us. It's a different type of headspace that I think makes for an easier point of entry. And for context, as we move through this psalm, whenever we encounter uh, the pronouns they and their, the psalmist is always referring to the people who are trying unjustly to kill him. Elsewhere in the psalm, he'll refer to them uh, variously as workers of wickedness, the unrighteous, the ungodly, the evildoers. Beginning with verses 9 through 11. But my eyes look unto you, O Lord God. In you is my refuge. O do not cast out my soul. Keep me from the snare which they have laid for me and from the traps of the evildoers. Let the ungodly fall into their own nets together and let me ever escape them. These verses are kind of safety 101 for Christians. Anytime we feel a threat, we can fix our eyes immediately on the Lord God and let him know that we are depending on him. Verses 10 and 11 are particularly wise prayers for when we know we are outmatched by our enemies. Almost by definition, an enemy is stronger or smarter than you are. If you know you've got what it takes to defend yourself from something, it's not really a threat or an enemy, it's more like a nuisance. But for the target of an assassination attempt, or for a population coping with a brand new virus, or for an individual living with a family member who is emotionally unstable, in many situations, we just do not have what it takes to keep ourselves safe. So these are great prayers to pray, that the Lord would give us supernatural aid to avoid the traps we cannot see. I think this is particularly helpful in complicated relationships where a person you care about deeply 
has significant character flaws or maybe a personality disorder or some other circumstance where trust has been eroded so completely that you're truly disoriented. This is a prayer of protection from unseen traps. Looking at verses 7 and 8. Let their rulers be overthrown in stony places, that they may hear my words, for they are sweet. Let their bones lie scattered at the mouth of the grave, as when the plowman scatters the earth in furrows. This part of David's prayer is more aggressive, asking that those most responsible for leading an assault of wickedness would be violently overthrown and that their bones would be unburied. This part of the psalm veers into territory of what's called an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory psalm is one that specifically calls down curses on one's enemies. And this is the type of prayer that probably needs no explanation for people who live in literal fear of their lives from literal enemies. Someone in Maripol, Ukraine, for example, might be praying that the generals who target children's hospitals with bombs would be violently removed from the army. But one meaningful inroad to this prayer for us is to recall that praying for God to destroy one's enemies is not the same as attempting ourselves to destroy our enemies. Praying for someone's destruction is not even the same thing as wishing for their destruction, although that's closer. But in prayer, we come before a holy God in awareness of our own unrighteousness, and we commit all our desires to God, trusting him completely to act on them or not as he sees fit. So in the heat of fear and anger and distrust and pain, there is nowhere safer to take ourselves than into the presence of God and ask him for what we do truly want and let God sort out that whole mess. Not just the mess that is the mess of our wicked enemies, but the mess that is ourselves when we are under duress, and which is often a mix of innocence and wickedness both. In the presence of the Lord is where we need to be when the pressures of the world work us into a state where not only can we completely trust those around us, we can't even trust ourselves completely. This leads us deeper into Psalm 141 and its formational power. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth, and keep the door of my lips. O let not my heart be inclined to any evil thing. Let me not be occupied in ungodly works with those who work wickedness lest I eat of such things as please them. Rather, let the righteous smite me, and in their loving kindness reprove me. But let not the oil of the unrighteous anoint my head. While I live, I will pray against their wickedness. As a desperate cry for the safety of one's body and soul, this is next-level awareness of all that truly threatens. We're going to look a little uh, more closely 
at the specific circumstances that are at play in the psalm writer's life here. This is, uh, I'm going to read a piece of David's history from 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 2 through 7. Then Saul, who's the king persecuting David, took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. So, as David is fleeing from one big, huge, obvious threat, the threat of being stabbed to death by King Saul or his men after years of running, another deadly threat emerges. But this threat is so small and so subtle, it's easy to miss. It comes from David's friends and from his own heart. David's men, who are laying their own lives on the line to protect him, are giving him counsel that sounds great. It's very practical advice. It's very satisfying advice. And it's very spiritual-sounding advice. They've taken a few small liberties with what God said and asserting that the Lord would give God's, David's enemy into David's hand and that then David would get to do whatever David wants to do with him. The clear implication is, hey, David, Saul's draining his bladder over there, completely clueless, completely defensive, defenseless, defenseless, and here we all sit with our weapons. And God said to you to do whatever seems good to you. David is stuck here between two different types of real danger. His body is under threat from Saul's soldiers, and his soul is threat from temptation posed by his own soldiers and friends. I don't think that David's soldiers are aware that they are now becoming threats to David. They had been acting as David's protectors. Now they have moved to a place where they themselves are mounting a form of attack upon David. But I don't think they recognize that. When you're under threat, temptations sometimes present themselves as God-given opportunities. That's hard, isn't it? When well-meaning people offer us a way out of difficulty that we know is off-limits, even though they're presented as godly, the locus of the attack shifts from threats out there to threats in here. And so, David's prayer shifts also. He prays now against the enemy within himself, that part of him which is responsive to bad ideas, the part of him that very naturally desires an end to fear and pressure and threat, the part of him that wants to join the evildoers. This is a powerful prayer, a prayer that acknowledges the allure of aligning oneself with one's enemies, 
It might sound strange to think of falling in with the same crowd of people who are trying to harm you, but there are plenty of ways we are tempted to do just that. So many circumstances in which we know we could put an end to an assault by adopting the convictions and strategies of our enemies. David knew that he could end the murderous threats against him right then and there simply by becoming a murderer himself. Wickedness is extremely appealing for all sorts of reasons. One translation of verse 4 reads, Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Eating of the delicacies of the wicked. Isn't that a great phrase? Giving into our baser instincts, whether that means indulging in forbidden sexual activity or inventing anger or spreading delectable bits of gossip, sometimes feels good at a really visceral level. Temptation is tempting precisely because it appeals deeply to some part of us. Not our best part, not our sanest part, but it has genuine appeal as a temporary salve for what is bent and broken inside of us. Iniquity and evil can be seriously attractive, especially to those who have been worn down by long periods of sustained stress. And it is a wise woman and a wise man who can both recognize this and admit it and ask for help. I know when I've spent too much time on Facebook, reading arguments whose logical inconsistencies make my head want to explode, I am regularly tempted to use the same sort of sniping, sarcastic, self-righteous rhetoric that I see everyone else using. I hate it when they, the evildoers, do it, and I think it's wrong for them to employ these verbal weapons, and I 100% want to do it myself. It feels like a great opportunity to put an end to something bad. But becoming occupied in ungodly works with those who work wickedness is not the answer. I need God himself to come and set a watch before my mouth and keep the door of my lips. Words matter. And where the psalmist prays, let not the oil of the unrighteous anoint my head. Wow. I think he is naming one of the most basic reasons we are tempted to join and become our enemies. Because if I can be morally flexible enough to join evildoers in doing evil, it's probable that they will stop targeting me. And maybe they will even start honoring me. Wouldn't that be a fabulous way to end suffering at the hand of evildoers if I could become their queen? (laughs) You may have noticed that in many little corners of the world, Chicago being one of these little corners, there's a rising tide of opposition to the story told in scriptures about what it means to be a human being. If you embrace a vision of humanity that acknowledges that we have a creator, to whom praise, fidelity, and obedience is due, 
and you assert that what we do with our bodies matters to God, and what we do with and to other bodies also matters to God, you are likely to get some pretty fierce pushback. You might even find that people react to your convictions with disapprobation, disgust, name-calling, a whole bunch of stuff. Now, I know that some folks feel like that means Christians are being persecuted. I don't think that's accurate. We are not being imprisoned or killed for our beliefs here in Chicago. And frankly, even if we were, what of it? Historically, Christianity and Christian ethics fall in and out of favor culturally all the time. Both in scripture and in history, suspicion of Christians and opposition to the kingdom of God are pretty normal. That's not something to get worked up about. But is it more uncomfortable to be a follower of Jesus than it was a few decades ago? Absolutely. Anyone who embraces the controversial ethics of Jesus risks losing cultural power and cultural status. Having cultural power and status were never the goals of Christianity. So again, no big deal in the grand scheme of things. The kingdom of God is not generally advanced by those means. But if you think that the threat of being demoted from the cool kids table to the loser's table in the cafeteria at lunch is not sufficient to make folks think pretty hard about throwing foundational Christian anthropology under the bus in hopes of winning back a little social approval, you are a rare bird indeed, if you do not think that is tempting, and good for you. It is tempting for most of us. The people with cultural cachet have big platforms, and they have loud microphones, and they seem to be using a good bit of their airtime insisting on total allegiance to a vision for the purpose of human bodies that is antithetical to the vision we find proclaimed in Scripture. We hear a chronic cacophony of voices chip, chip, chipping away at our understanding of righteousness, demanding that we switch allegiance. The pressure to conform is high, and resistance to it is costly. And I am very aware that if I just cried uncle and agreed to all their lousy conditions, the noise would stop for me, and I could be welcomed with open arms and feel the warm oil of the approval of the unrighteous anointing my head. But the psalmist prays, let the righteous smite me, and their loving kindness reprove me. Let my instinct for self-preservation be activated by a desire to please the righteous, rather than my, by my fear of the unrighteous. Lord, have mercy. Finally now, we come to the heart and the root and the source of our hope whenever we are beset by fightings within and fears without. Looking at verses 1 and 2. Lord, I call upon you. Hasten unto me and hear my voice when I cry unto you. Let my prayer be set forth in your sight as incense, and let the lifting up of my hands be an evening sacrifice. 
The Psalms are not just hymns to remind us of who God is. And they are not just models for how to pray, though they are those things. The Psalms actually lay out for us and illustrate an entire way of life in which worship unites us with the God who is the fountainhead of all life and goodness and who is the place and person of truest safety. That way of life is a life of worship. Worship of the Lord God Almighty is the through line to safety in a threatening world. Our desperate prayers are worship. Gathering weekly for word and sacrament is worship. These are essential acts of worship, never to be forsaken. But saving power does not lie in those words and actions and the rites and rituals themselves. But as we offer ourselves to God through worship, in spirit and in truth, we are united with him through our Savior, Jesus Christ. So running for his life, David lost access to the tabernacle and to worship there. And he left behind all the blessed rituals by which his community came into the presence of a holy God. All the patterns of a communal life dedicated to the Lord that once provided David with stability and support and assurance were all lost to him in this season, running around the desert. No gathering of God's people in the morning and in the evening. No golden glow cast from the candles in their candle stand. No comforting heat rising from the burnt offerings. No rich scent of holy incense coming in clouds to fill the nostrils. No priest to make sacrifice for sins. But in the loneliness of isolation, in fear, under attack, in temptation, David offers himself and everything he has up to the Lord in true worship. There is no incense. Let my prayer be as incense in your sight, O Lord. There is no one to make a burnt offering for my sins. Then let the lifting up of my hands be accepted as an evening sacrifice. In every type of fear and distress, we seek safety in the Lord by presenting our bodies, our minds, our souls before him in worship. It is through our flawed and imperfect acts of worship that we join ourselves with our Savior, Jesus Christ, who takes on every enemy on our behalf. He gave himself over to our enemies, sin, suffering, death, so that we might be saved from them. All the woes and ills that harass us have fallen on him, and he has overcome them all for our sake. As we worship, as we pray, we hide ourselves in him. Here's one description of this spiritual reality written by an Eastern Orthodox pastor, Patrick Reardon. The Old Testament's evening sacrifice was a type of and a preparation for that true oblation rendered at the evening of the world when the Lamb of God, nailed to the cross, lifted his hands to the Father in sacrificial prayer 
for the salvation of mankind. This was the true lifting up of the hands, the definitive evening sacrifice offered on Golgotha by which God marked his seal on human destiny. Wherever then we Christians raise our hands in prayer, it is to symbolize that our entire relationship to God is founded in the power of the cross. We are thereby proclaiming that we have no access to God except through the cross of the Lord. The raising of our hands in prayer is acceptable to God because of its relationship to that true evening sacrifice through which we draw near. In the morning, in the evening, and every time in between, we can take refuge in him who loves us and who gave himself for us. And as we pray, we know that our our prayer ascends to God in heaven like incense and that the fragrance is pleasing to him. We have this remarkable assurance from John's Revelation chapter 8. An angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hands. As we worship the Lord, we actively receive the deliverance that we long for. As we worship the Lord in spirit and truth, we find freedom from temptation and freedom from fear. As we worship the Lord, he brings us into close fellowship with himself in two of the safest places in all the universe, at the cross of Jesus Christ and in the throne room of heaven with the Father. Lord, we call upon you, hasten unto us, and hear our voice when we cry to you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.